0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Brian. I am the lead pastor here, and I am excited, as we continue in our series, to be in Acts 17, uh, 1 through 15. Those will be our verses today. So if you'd like to make your way there, and I love that we are a church that opens our Bible, opens apps. Uh, Before we started, I was asked, what's the text? So I can get there and I can be ready what a beautiful, beautiful thing. Acts 17, verses 1 through 5. We have a group over here praying for us right now, and, and normally they're praying through my manuscript. I've stolen the paper manuscript, and I'm just letting them know as they're praying, please pray that my iPad does not update. Apple's convinced that it needs to do so right now, and I keep telling it no. So we'll see how this is going to go. Um, Let's take a look at God's Word. Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. God's Word says this. After they passed through Amphibolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into this synagogue, and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and raised from the dead. Uh, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out into the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, "These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus." The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. Afterward, taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were more noble were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they had received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowd. These brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. Father, as we seek to hear from you through your word, by your word, And for your word, Lord, I would ask that that you would speak in terms we could understand. That you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. And Lord, that in that we would be eager to know your word and to be transformed by your word. That we would be of noble character, studying it daily and desiring it and being transformed by it. Help me to preach this well. Help us to hear it well. And God, thank you that we have the opportunity even to see what it is you have for us by your word. It is in Jesus' name. Amen. Just now, an assessment happened. Like a test. You've all been assessed in this moment. You were given an opportunity to approach God's Word, that is to hear from God. That was an opportunity that you just had. How we think about Scripture and receive it speaks volumes about how we think about God. And it speaks volumes about our character. Where were your thoughts during the reading? Were you growing impatient? Ah, oh, 15 verses. you going to read 15 verses? We don't have time for that. Get past this part. Get to the sermon already, preacher. <laughs> Is that where your mind was? Yeah. <laughs> At least he's honest. Yeah. Was your mind distracted on other things? If you were on your phone app, and this sometimes happens, were you you being drawn away by all those social media notifications and emails and things that pop up across the top? Or were you eager to hear from God? Was your heart excited? To open this up and, and to read and to be like those who wanted to have the word open and be prepared, were you actively following along and, and paying attention were there things that maybe jumped out to you? you saw some differences maybe in the translation you're reading from or maybe God just put something in your mind and you went wow i want to I want to look at that i want to I want to read I want to read more about that I want to look at that this week you've been assessed how, how, how did it how did it go in acts Chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, Luke deliberately contrasts two cities of people based on the results of this same assessment. He's very deliberate about what we see in these two cities. He gave the outcome of the assessment, believe it or not. He's shown us in Acts 17, 11. And and, and now I'm suspecting that most of you are looking there. Out of curiosity, praise the Lord. So I'll just read it. The people here, meaning Berea, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's the assessment. I hope that all of us discover that we could have a little more earnestness for God's word. I hope all of us recognize how we can prioritize God's Word in our life and maybe have a desire to to study God's Word. I hope that's the case for us. But I also hope we realize this assessment isn't two results. It's not this or that. It's not Thessalonica or Berea. There's actually four results, not two. Let me show you. It's It's a scale, maybe a sliding scale. Okay, there are those who outright... Reject the Messiah in Scripture, and therefore they're just working against God. The ones who came down, the ones who were upset, the ones who started a riot. Okay, they were not having it. There were the Thessalonians, although let's not forget that, that some of them indeed were persuaded, but it didn't seem that they were as persuaded maybe as the Bereans. So that's step two. Step three would be the Bereans themselves, which were commended for this eagerness. And there's one more. It's Paul... Silas, and Timothy, who were so moved by the word of God, they received it so well, they were so eager for it that they gave up their comfort and gave up even the possibility of their lives. They put their lives at risk to take that word that they loved and cherished so much to other people who did not have it. It's a scale. So I pray that every one of us today would see maybe where we're at on this scale and maybe just move a little bit. Maybe not a lot, my prayers, we move a lot, but just even a little. Even just recognizing where you're at might be a good, healthy start today. So let's go ahead and take a look at this missionary report. Let's walk through what Luke has for us, starting with how they got started in Thessalonica. And let's see maybe what we can take from this to see where we fit on the scale and what we should do with that. Look again at verses 1 through 4. After they passed through Amphibolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and raise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. I'm not really sure why they passed through those first two cities. It doesn't tell us, but they they kept, for some reason, they kept going. The text doesn't say it's possible that they wanted to go where there was a synagogue. We see that pattern as Paul journeys, but we didn't see that in we didn't see that in Philippi. In Philippi, he wanted to go to a place of prayer, and it was outside the city, and they went down by the river, and they suspected maybe there'd be people praying there, and there was. But in this particular case, it does tell us he went to the Jewish synagogues as usual, leaving us with maybe the possibility, the reality that Paul was a regular visitor to the synagogues. But it's clear from this he wasn't just visiting. He wasn't just there to, to take it all in. He went there with a purpose He was taking the gospel to the Jewish people, of which he was one, but the unbelieving Jewish people who probably never heard the name of Jesus. It says he was reasoning with them from Scripture. Reasoning with them, arguing, working through this in a positive way, looking for a positive result. What a remarkable line that we seem to overlook so often in our day. That they reasoned from Scripture. It's not too tough to get into a spiritual conversation in our community, right? It's easy, easy. You can get in a spiritual conversation any day of the week and and probably three times on Sunday. No problem, right? But as soon as you bring Scripture into it, forget it, shut down. We can talk about all kinds of spiritually type stuff, but man, don't bring God's Word into this conversation, right? How often are we reasoning from Scripture, from this foundation, that this is what we reason from, rather than just sort of grabbing our own thoughts and our own ideas and this thing out there and that thing out of there. This is kind of cool and that's kind of cool. No, no, no. They were, they were reasoning from God's word. And what was it that Paul was arguing? What was he? What was his argument? What was he reasoning from Scripture? And remember, he had Old Testament Scripture. He didn't have the New Testament. What was he arguing? He was arguing... To them that the Messiah, the one whom they are waiting for, the one whom they're longing for and looking for, had to suffer and rise again. And obviously, if he's saying he had to rise, he's assuming he died. So, suffer, die, which is shocking. The Savior supposed to, the one who's supposed to save us, is going to die himself and then be raised. Paul told them it is necessary, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. The saving hero of the story would himself have to suffer, die, and be resurrected. Those three aspects are very significant aspects of the gospel. So much so that when Jesus appeared to the, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, and they didn't recognize him as after he had died and was raised from the dead, it's at the end of the book of Luke, Luke 24. Jesus says to them, as they're talking about this Savior who he's supposed to be, how foolish and slow are you to believe all the prophets have spoken? Oh, thank you, Jesus. What a Man, are you, don't you believe the Bible? He says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, it's his way of saying the law and the prophets, it's the way of saying the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus comes to him and says, It was necessary that the, that the Savior must suffer and die. And I'm going to show you with the Old Testament, which, because he didn't have a New Testament, so I'm going to show you with the Testament that this is necessary. We don't really know what scriptures Paul reasoned from. It doesn't say. But maybe, it's just purely my speculation, maybe you went to Isaiah 53. right? Maybe he quoted Isaiah 53.10 that says the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Or maybe you quoted Isaiah 53, 5, that says he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds? Those would have been pretty good ones to go to. I don't know. Maybe he went to Deuteronomy 21, 23, Cursed is the one who's hung on the tree. Maybe he went to the second psalm or the 16th psalm. I mean, Jesus made it clear that we can go all over the place and see that Christ had to suffer and had to die in order to save us. It was necessary. All over the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. And according to both Paul and Jesus' example, Jesus had to suffer in this way. and He had to die. Today there is, there is a lot invested in sharing a partial gospel. Man, that's super popular in our evangelism today and in our efforts to share with the world maybe Jesus whom they've never heard. We don't like to spend much effort, it would seem, uh, the church in America at least, in reminding people that there was suffering, death, and resurrection. Like, we typically will focus on the benefits of the gospel. Oh, Jesus gives you, you know, a flourishing life. You can have eternal life. Those are great benefits. I mean, I've heard people say if you have Jesus, you'll quit smoking. I don't know if that's true or not, but that sounds like a good benefit, if true. People share the gospel in these ways. They share with the benefits, but they don't actually share the gospel itself, or they only share a small part of the gospel rather than sharing the whole gospel. They share small truths without sharing the whole truth. So it might be something like Jesus loves you without any mention of suffering, death, or resurrection. Now, it's true. It's, uh, it is true. Jesus loves you. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. Or maybe they share something like, God has a wonderful plan for your life without any mention of Christ's suffering, death, or resurrection. Okay, this is also true. Christ has a plan for your life. Because you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Bought for a price is in reference to Jesus dying for you. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. He bought you with his blood, and therefore he has a plan for you. 1 Corinthians 6.20 so what's the problem with the gospel that neglects Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection? What's the big deal? Why not just, you know, get a commercial, let everybody know Jesus loves us, everything's great. Isn't that awesome? Why was it necessary that Paul had to, to, to prove that the Messiah had to suffer and be raised? What's the significance of that? It's necessary that we understand that Christ had to die, he had to suffer and be raised, In order to see truth our truth because if we can overlook Jesus suffering and his death and his resurrection and we don't see the necessity of that then it's really easy just to overlook our sin so I think we don't want to look to that so we don't have to look to us if I can just avoid that if I don't have to look at the punishment then I don't need to look at the cause for the punishment I don't need to look at the the reason for those ramifications. If we can just ignore all of that and go with the happy stuff, then I must be all good too. And then what's the point? We're missing it. We're outright missing it. It was important for Paul to show that Jesus suffered and he died and he was resurrected so that they would recognize they need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sin. That's what he was reasoning. That's what he was arguing. That's what he was sharing but as we've been learning in the series, as we've seen plenty of times, when we share the whole gospel, there is a response that comes. There's a good response, people get saved. There's the other response, people get furious. They get offended and mad, and then in some cases, in Paul's case, they try to kill you. Right? It's not the response we hoped for. Right? That's pretty bad, because the gospel can be offensive when we share the whole gospel. And in this case, people are upset or jealous or hostile towards God. So now let's look at what happens next. Notice, notice how this starts. It was really good. People are getting saved. Verse 5, but... Dang it. Darn. What are we doing? But... Oh, but the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, who we haven't even heard from, we don't know who this guy is. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out into the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Jesus crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset after taking a security bond from jason and the others they released them oh man, man uh, none of these reports ever just turn out like we went here we preached the gospel and thousands of people got saved and everybody was happy that's just not in the book of acts very right? i mean you just don't see that much we have some days when you see three thousand people get saved that's awesome but nobody's ever like just Free and clear of any problems. The gospel seems to offend those who want to have nothing to do with the gospel. These guys just can't seem to catch a break. Verse 5 starts with, but. Things are about to change. Here we go again. Angry, zealous people. And here's the problem. Not only do those people reject Paul's argument, they're not going to have anybody else accepting it either. It's such that they're willing to to go to great lengths to fight against this gospel message. They are determined to fight against Jesus Christ by force, if necessary. So, what do they do? They find some wicked men, clearly says wicked men, and they form a mob. Who started the riot? They did. With who? Wicked people. Does this not remind you of the mob the Jewish leaders formed at Jesus' trial before Pilate? They were upset. They go out. They get some some wicked people. They form a a mob. But this particular mob must not be a very good mob because they can't find Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're like, well, they were staying at Jason's house. Jason showed him some, some hospitality, so let's go just wreck Jason's house and let's drag Jason out into the street, poor guy. He's like, all I did was show some hospitality and now you're coming against me. So they grab this Jason guy and they drag him out into the street because the mob always needs a target, doesn't it? An angry mob needs to fight somebody or something misguided or otherwise, doesn't it? So Jason gets to take the brunt of the name of Jesus being shared in the city. The accusation they, they level in verse 7. It says that these missionaries were acting contrary to Caesar's decree saying there is another king, Jesus now, we've heard this approach before. The chief priests at Jesus' trial were shouting, we have no king but Caesar. Like, in order to get these people in trouble, we're going to denounce that God is our king altogether. These people claim to be the chief priests in, in Jesus' trial. These people here are the, the supposedly faithless, faithful Jewish people, but they're faithless. We have no king but Caesar. No wonder they rejected Paul's argument from Scripture. They're just rejecting Scripture altogether. I don't care about God's word. I don't see that as being very authoritative in my life. He's not my king. He is. You just choose not to submit to him. And they were looking for a way to silence the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like those chief priests at the trial. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you too. And they don't even come up with any new tricks. Not even very creative in it. So, as was also Paul's practice... Paul once again gets to leave the city under the threat of death and the cover of darkness. He seems to have a regular habit of having to do this, unfortunately. Let's see where this goes next. Look at uh, verses 10 through 12. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews People here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as the men. I am really encouraged here that there were brothers and sisters, once again, in this town because the gospel came to town and changed their lives. Bible is clearly identifying there were people in Thessalonica who were brothers and sisters, and so just like in Philippi, the missionaries come, they share the gospel, and then they leave, and these new believers in this town, even despite all of this uproar and problem, come together and plant a the church there without the missionaries. And we know there was a church there because we have two letters that were written later to the church in Thessalonica, It wasn't Paul, Silas, or Timothy that did all that work. It was those new believers. Praise the Lord. It was God planting a church and doing the work based on His word by the power of the gospel. That's awesome. Paul, unfortunately, has to go to Berea. Berea. And he does the same thing he does in Thessalonica. I think that's the whole idea. These two things are to be seen together. It is two panels telling us a story, showing us a unique difference. He goes again, just like in Thessalonica, into the synagogue. And so I assume surely he was reasoning from Scripture and explaining and proving that it was necessary that the Messiah has to suffer and be raised. I don't know why it would be any different. This is interesting. In both Thessalonica and Berea, So in verses 4 and in verse 12, Jews believed, and many, in verse 4, or a large number of Greeks believed. And in both accounts mentioned, a large number of leading, it says, or prominent Greek women believed. It's the same scenario in both cases. It looks like the the results almost seem to be the same. And by the way, on a side note, I'm going to take a little brief tangent Throughout the entire Old Testament, there's this constant warning to God's people not to marry unbelieving women. Why? Because they will tempt you away from the Lord. They will tempt their husbands away from the faith. And we saw that happen over and over again in Scripture, even faithful kings and all sorts of people. Now, I think we're seeing the reversal, possibly, of that thing we're seeing the other side of what happens with that now we have believing women possibly prominent ones that may have an impact in tempting their husbands toward true faith it's like god's saying i see that and i raise you this right here we go peter talks about this in first peter 3 1 through 6 and some of the ladies in here are married to men who are not believers Or you're married to men who don't have very strong faith and and you don't know what to do here. I hope this encouragement and, and Peter's encouragement encourages you. Hang in there. Keep praying and remain faithful, especially for the sake of your husband, because it seems quite possible that just like the way women can tempt men away from God, you might have the ability to draw them closer. So hang in there. It might take a long time. Hang in there. Okay, getting back to the saints here in Berea. I have a question that I have to ask. I think this demands that we ask it. If the results in both places seem to be that Jews and a large number of Greeks and prominent women were saved, what's the reason for Luke's assessment that the Bereans had more noble character than the Thessalonians? Looks like the results are the same. How how does he come to this conclusion? I think our answer is found in the second part of verse eleven. It says, since they, for this reason, here's the explanation, since they received the word with eagerness, and examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It seems to be saying that they received the word with a different sort of attitude, with an eagerness. It seems to be saying that what they did when they received the word might have been different. They examined the scriptures daily to see if this was true. That seems to be the contrasting factor that Luke is bringing into play here. This means we we have to think about how we get there as much as we think about the results. Maybe we need to think about the means even more than we think about the results. People got saved in both places, but how the Brians approach to scripture seems to honor God better. It seems to be more significant for them in some way, a greater blessing for them in some way. It seems to have this substantial impact on the entire process. How we receive and think about God's word matters because it reveals how we think about God. We can see this playing out in so many ways in the church at large, can't we? where the the results seem more significant than the means, and we ignore the means to get to whatever results we think are right. We see it even in the littlest things, how sermons are, are rooted in Scripture, or maybe not. Are there sermons in the church rooted in Scripture? Are we preaching from Scripture? Or do we have a really great TED Talk that just helps us get through the momentary things of life better? Are the songs we sing rooted and grounded in God's word? Are we singing catchy things that are kind of popular? Is this between the preacher and God's people? Or do we just close it up and chuck it off to the side? Maybe we read from it, but then there's that, and then that's it. Or is it this? Are we shooting for big numbers, or are we shooting to get God's Word right? Are we heralding and proclaiming what God would have us to hear, regardless of if it is difficult, regardless of if it is unpopular, regardless of if it does not grow the church rapidly? The means are important. They're important. Some of you, this is not in my notes. We're on dangerous territory, as my wife will tell you. (laughs) Some of you talk about this big box up here, this thing. And it could be one of these music stands, even. But you talk about this as if it's an archaic thing of the past. Maybe we should have a pub table or a little chair. Maybe I should just have nothing and just walk around and have a teleprompter and and do whatever. But let me ask you a question. When the president or the mayor or the governor shows up and has a press conference to speak, do they sit at a pub table? Do they just wander around and chit-chatty all over the place? Or do they stand in front of something that contains a seal on the front? What's on the seal? The seal is what gives them the authority. They represent what's on the seal. Here's the seal. And it sits on this box. As if to say, I only can speak what is here and nothing less and nothing more. This is what gives any authority I may or may not have any weight. You see it in the little things. What are we so willing to jettison? What are we so willing to give up as a church? The means of getting there are important. Whether we have thousands of salvations and baptisms or not, if we get there through bad means, the fruit will not be good. How we think about God's Word matters because it reveals how we think about God. We see this playing out in our own lives too, don't we? Are we spending time in God's Word? or is the social media and the exciting fun things getting our true attention and our true affection what occupies our time what occupies our thoughts what stirs our heart what stirs our affections do we want to hear from the whole counsel of god or you know just the pithy out of context stuff that we like to use to justify ourselves to point fingers at other people does god's word inform and shape your decisions and your actions? Or are you just shaped by the peer pressure of society? We're just adults living in junior high with gray hair. What's influencing the way you behave and think? Is it God's pattern of life for you? He says, this is how you flourish. This is how you live. Or is it politics, or the world's best practices, or what will make you the most money, or what will make you the most popular? What informs your decisions? The method by how you get those decisions, the means is important. Is it shaped and conformed to God's word or something else? Look into your life a little bit. Dig deep. Be honest with yourself. How are you really responding to the creator of the universe who knows best for you? How much is this really influencing your life? How much are you really desiring to to know this and to dig into this? Have you read it all? Just parts you don't like? Just if you could you'd pull the, the Thomas Jefferson thing out and just cut it out. <laughs> we do that when we just ignore books of the Bible. You've cut it out yourself. You do that when you don't approach us and read. You've just cut it out. You've you've said, that can collect us. It's not important to me. Check your heart. Check your attitude. Are you eager towards this? Or are you not so much excited about coming to God's Word? That's heavy, I know. I get it. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. There are assessments in this world that we cannot change. Okay, I go to the doctor. he measures how tall I am. Can't change that. We check my age. I cannot change that in the direction I want it to go. But there are some assessments that we take that we need to take as an early warning to be aware that maybe change is necessary and we can make changes. God gives us the Holy Spirit. So as we see this, He will help teach us and guide us and illuminate Scripture if we would so be willing to open up His Word. You can make changes. The assessment shows you where you're at with God or where you're working against God. And and here's a really good news. If we did the assessment this morning and you went, Man, my heart is against God. Maybe you're an angry troll watching this sermon five months from now, and have weird comments, and your heart is against God. Good news. I'm just looking right at the camera. Good news. God changes us. He changes our affections. Christ died so that you can draw close to God and not be struck down, but be loved and cherished and led and guided and transformed. Praise the Lord. So if you, if you feel yourself sort of working against God, but maybe I want to draw closer. Come see me. Come talk to me. Let's talk it out. Let's open up God's Word and, and see what it means to be a Christian. Or, if you're not willing to do that, pick it up and read. Take it up and read it. Start in John. Ask God to help you with it. He will. He will. Or maybe... Maybe you're feeling like you don't have that eagerness. You don't feel that motivation in the mornings or in the evenings or whatever your reading time might be or your listening time might be to go to God's Word. Ask God to help you and then just push through and He will help you. He will. Maybe you want to know it better. Praise the Lord. Give yourself another five minutes. You know, 15 minutes, you can read four chapters every day. So just give yourself... Another few minutes and read five chapters. Memorize some verses. Bury them deep in your heart. See what happens. God will do something if you, if you realize in your assessment, I need to make a little bit more of a change. God will do that. Maybe you're doing all that. Maybe you're going, man, I'm all about it. I am all about, it. I love God's word, I cherish God's word, I read God's word, this is fantastic, then maybe what God is telling you in that assessment, it is, it is time for you to go to where they might kill you. They might take away your comfort so that those who do not have the word of God can hear it. If you really rooted in God's word and you love it and you feel like you know it, there is a calling for you. In that assessment, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are the model for you. I don't know where you're at, I don't know where any of us are at. My hope and prayer at the beginning, I told you, was that we would, we would move the ball a little bit more forward. Just a little bit today. Draw a little bit closer to God. I pray that something changes. Now, it would be really awesome if I could end right there. But I still have these last couple of verses we just need to deal with. So let's take a quick look at that. Before I even read, you already know what we're going to see starting in verse 13, there is a but in Berea. But. Wasn't quite where I was headed. There is a but in our text, in letters. Verse 13 starts with, but when the Jews from Thessalonica found out about the word of God it had been preached, or excuse me, proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. After receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as quickly as possible, they departed. Once again, brothers and sisters, here in Berea, once again, missionaries departing, I am convinced, Although we don't have a letter to this church in our canon, I'm sure they probably started a church there. Seems to be what God is doing. Praise the Lord. The proclamation of the gospel, people are saved, they gather together, they start churches. And once again, we see that people are offended by the preaching of the gospel when it's preached in its entirety. This stuff is not easy stuff. Missionaries have to face this battle. Maybe some of our church are feeling called to go into places, and we need to pray for them. And if not, we need to be praying for all the other missionaries that are taking the gospel into the world. Don't forget them in this work. Pray for them. This is hard stuff. And we need to pray for one another. Because this can be hard stuff even where we live, where we work, and where we do business. As we think about the larger pattern of the response to God's word, I think it's valuable to think about these smaller patterns even in our own lives. Are we offended by God's Word and hostile to it? Are we apathetic to God's Word? Are we manipulating God's Word to meet our own purposes, for our own benefits? Or are we eagerly receiving God's Word and desiring to study it daily? I sure hope it's the latter. How we receive and think about God's Word matters because it shows how we think about God. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for your word, Lord, I'm so grateful that you say things that offend our sinful side, yet bring us to sanctify, sanctification, our sanctified side. I'm thankful for your redemption. I'm thankful for missionaries who have risked their lives to share the gospel. Let us not take that for granted. I'm thankful for the growth that you do in us. And and we've seen over the many, many weeks, little by little, drawing us closer to you, drawing us more into your word, creating more of an excitement to know you better. Lord, I just ask, I beg that you would continue to do that in the time that you've given us, whatever that is. If it's 52 more weeks to study your word daily, praise the Lord. If it's 552 more weeks to study your word. Daily praise the Lord. Move us and grow us and transform us, and each one of us, in whatever way you see best fit, is coming closer and closer to you through your word. God, we just praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit RedeemingLifeUtah.org.